You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Gentlemen, the President of the United States. Be seated, please. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, the Soviet-American talks on limiting nuclear arms have been deadlocked for over a year. As a result of negotiations involving the highest level of both governments, I am announcing today a significant development in breaking the deadlock. The statement that I shall now read is being issued simultaneously in Moscow and Washington. Washington, 12 o'clock, Moscow, 7 p.m. The governments of the United States and the Soviet Union after reviewing the course of their talks on the limitation of strategic armaments, have agreed to concentrate this year on working out an agreement for the limitation of the deployment of anti-ballistic missile systems, ABMs. They have also agreed that together with concluding an agreement to limit ABMs, they will agree on certain measures with respect to the limitation of offensive strategic weapons. The two sides are taking this course in the conviction that it will create more favorable conditions for further negotiations to limit all strategic arms. These negotiations will be actively pursued. This agreement is a major step in breaking the stalemate on nuclear arms talks. Intensive negotiations, however, will be required to translate this understanding into a concrete agreement. This statement that I have just read expresses the commitment of the Soviet and American governments at the highest levels to achieve that goal. If we succeed, this joint statement that has been issued today may well be remembered as the beginning of a new era in which all nations will devote more of their energies and their resources, not to the weapons of war, but to the works of peace. By the time Richard Nixon reached the White House in 1969, the Cold War had been underway for more than two decades. The superpowers had reached a crossroads. They could continue the saber-rattling and confrontations that threatened to plunge the world into nuclear war. Or they could agree to disagree and seek areas of mutual interest. In 1969, they chose the latter and a decade of relative calm in the Cold War began. In Europe, West German Chancellor Willy Brandt called it Auspolitik, 
In the United States, Nixon and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, called it detente. It did not end the Cold War, but it created a framework for cooperation among the rivals. 1972, President Nixon embarked on a diplomatic trip that came to symbolize detente. When he touched down at Capitol Airport near Peking, Nixon became the first American president to be welcomed in the Communist People's Republic of China. It was a historic opening in the Cold War. During a week of diplomacy and cultural exchange, two former enemies made great progress toward normalizing relations. Not to be outdone, Soviet Union reached out to the West as well. German Leonid Brezhnev saw detente as an opportunity to gain access to valuable foreign aid and open its borders to international trade. In May 1972, the Kremlin in Moscow played host to the American president. Together, Nixon and Brezhnev signed the first ever agreements to limit nuclear weapons. The SALT I and ABM treaties were largely symbolic, but they represented a mutual effort to work towards cooperation and coexistence. President Nixon appealed to the Soviet people and their leaders. As we look at the prospects for peace, we see that we have made significant progress at reducing the possible sources of direct conflict between us. But history tells us that great nations have often been dragged into war without intending it by conflicts between smaller nations. As great powers, we can and should use our influence to prevent this from happening. Our goal should be to discourage aggression in other parts of the world, and particularly among those smaller nations that look to us for leadership and example. With great power goes great responsibility. So when Nixon and Kissinger took office in January 1969, the Soviet Union seemed at that point to have the upper hand. They were a senior partner in the Sino-Soviet alliance. They had a chokehold on Eastern Europe. They'd supported successful communist liberation movements throughout the world. They had a defense buildup and were approaching nuclear parity with the United States. We, on the other hand, we were bogged down in a war in Southeast Asia. We seemed unable to win and incapable of ending. But by the time Nixon left office five years later, the U.S. had reached detente with the Soviet Union and signed a series of significant arms control agreements. You were there when, but... What, what was the president... Oh, let, let's put this in the broadest context. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Nixon and Kissinger came in, as you briefly mentioned, we were bogged down in the Vietnam War. We had an uneasy relationship with the Soviets on top of the Czechoslovakia invasion, and we had no contact with China. So Nixon and Kissinger's highest priorities all happened to be with communist countries. End the war in Vietnam more stable relationship with Moscow, open up with Beijing, and they were all interrelated. At the same time, you had the domestic scene, which was also undercutting uh, posture abroad, anti-Vietnam war protests, assassinations, race riots, 
uh, tremendous turmoil in this country. So they faced a very challenging uh, environment. <coughs> so the three top priorities in foreign policy were the ones I mentioned, and they were interrelated. In order to have better relations with the Soviets, you open up with China to get uh, Moscow's attention. Uh, you keep China a little bit nervous because with China, it's after 25 years of isolation and no normalization, it was mostly discussions, not agreements. Whereas with Moscow, you're making agreements and China can see it's concrete. And by opening up with both these giants, patrons of Hanoi, you put pressure on the North Vietnamese to strike a reasonable deal. So this was the conceptual strategic policy of the president as he set out in 69. And he, by 72, he managed to achieve all three of these goals. So it really was a, three, a three-legged stool. You, right. needed, you needed to get out of Vietnam. You needed to open with China. You needed arms Stay. control with the Soviet Union. Right. And no, no one of those legs would stand without the other. Well, they all reinforced each other, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Initially, there wasn't a lot of interest, my impression was, uh, in arms control <laughs> assault negotiations. It was kind of that given to Jerry Smith and acted right. a kind of developed... No, it was more establishing we can get yeah. into the strategy versus yeah. the, the uh, Soviets... Mm-hmm. It was more of a strategy overall relationship, right, which exactly. arms control was a component. Component, but not, yeah. not the component, yeah. just a component. The basic strategy with, with Moscow, and my colleagues here can edit me here. Uh, first of all, Nixon was not naive about Moscow. You had Russian nationalism. You had communist ideology. You had Soviet expansionism, mm-hmm. a trifecta. So he knew he was dealing with a tough adversary. On the other hand... You had nuclear weapons in a dangerous world. So he, his feeling, I think, was we, we're way beyond massive retaliation of Dulles and Eisenhower because either you do everything or do nothing. And containment, useful as it was, wasn't enough to make a stable world and a stable bilateral relationship. So something more was needed. And as you quoted, negotiation, I wouldn't say instead of confrontation exactly, but along with uh, realistic uh, need to resist the Soviets at the same time. Whether it was in the Middle East, Africa, or Latin America, we would push back, sort of a reflection of containment, whenever they press forward. At the same time, negotiate in concrete national interest, not just general atmosphere, whether it was arms control or anything else. So using sticks and carrots, using uh, pressure when necessary, opening the China to get their attention, visiting Poland and Romania and Eastern Europe to show the Soviets couldn't speak for the entire communist world, but also negotiating in specific areas of interest like arms control to try to make a more stable relationship. Whose idea was this? Was this Nixon? Was this Kissinger? Like most of this tremendous foreign policy uh, initiatives in this period, you give Nixon the, the ultimate credit. He was president. He had to make the tough decisions. And he had the strategic grasp that no other president has had, in my opinion, in this area. But Kissinger, independently, because they didn't know each other well when they started out, had reached mostly the same conclusion. So they reinforced each other. They both deserve credit. But Kissinger is the first to say the president comes first. Mm-hmm. With some reluctance sometimes. <laughs> uh, the negotiations that we had had with the Soviet Union on arms control, the ones that stopped after the Czechoslovak invasion, how were those different than what Nixon proposed to do? And I'll anybody jump in with that. Well, I think when said, uh, you know, in, in the Johnson administration, it was a arms control, strategic arms control negotiation. That was it. In this case, as Wynn said, it was part of a much broader mm-hmm. set of uh, negotiations and interaction with the Russians, the Chinese, and the Vietnamese. So it was a, a very different conceptual basis. 
And what were the, so what was the administration's goal then when they started relations with the Soviet Union? They well, wanted to the, link on everything. Con- on the arms, arms control, control side, that was a piece that I was involved in. Mm-hmm. But on that side, uh, the, there was a lot of discussions during 1969, some with the Russians, and began, Henry began to develop his relationship with Dobrenin. Uh, and the Russians had a real interest in ABM. As we said earlier, they were very fearful of our capability, potential capability there. We were interested because we saw this buildup continuum of offensive systems, especially ICBMs. We wanted to limit those. And there was enormous opposition in the country uh, on weapons systems, on ABM in particular. Defense budgets were under attack. So there was a, a real interest in trying to find a way to begin getting arms around it. But they started negotiations in the fall of 1969 mm-hmm. in, in Helsinki, uh, very broad discussions and so on, went on next year. But not an awful lot happened over the next 18 months, uh, back and forth on different positions. But uh, a, lot of, a lot of specific things happened, but not till early, uh, um, in early 71, uh, when Dobrenin and Kissinger worked out a, a broad deal, which basically said, uh, a limited ABM capability on either side and limits on offensive weapons, a freeze on offensive weapons. And by that, they meant ICBMs primarily. They weren't thinking at that point in time, or at least weren't talking about you know, you, submarine launch missiles. You mentioned Dobrynin for a minute. Um, one of the things that we have seen with these previous um, panels is that there seemed to be two negotiations going on. There was maybe the public one that was happening, whether it was over Vietnam, nothing with China, but there was also the secret negotiations. Well, even China, on. you had the Warsaw and Geneva talks, the sort of public uh, So there was something public where yeah. everybody was focused on, yeah. but the real work was being done in these back-channel negotiations. Okay. Talk to me about um, Ambassador de Brennan. Who was he and why was he so critical? Well, I'll let others talk about that, but before we get to that, yeah. in addition to the arms control dimension, more broadly to answer your question, Nixon and Kissinger were looking for a more stable relationship in a very dangerous nuclear world. And therefore, there was sort of three elements uh, beyond what I've already mentioned. There was negotiations, but they had to be concrete and in the self-interest of both sides. We make progress where there's common interests, like limiting the arms race, if we could find a way. Uh, secondly, mutual restraint. To try to t- show the Soviets it was not in either side's interest and it was dangerous to keep pressing the envelope in various parts of the world. So therefore, resist them, like in the Middle East, and uh, as we'll talk about the Cuban uh, sub-base. And then thirdly, the concept of linkage, uh, which was not always employed. In fact, Nixon felt more strongly about linkage, for example, getting Moscow to lean on Hanoi for a peace agreement and not do a lot of other stuff unless they did that. Kissinger's more interested in a broad approach, uh, but they both believed in making clear that the Soviets couldn't pick and choose and the overall behavior of the Soviet Union would help determine our posture. So unlike the Johnson administration, which was negotiating arms control, Nixon said, we're not going to negotiate that unless we get other things along with it, Vietnam, et cetera? Well, we'll get back to that. But he was more interested, and his so-called secret plan to end the Vietnam War was really to get the Soviets and the Chinese to lean on Hanoi for an agreement. Mm -hmm. And so he felt very strongly that the Soviets, as the major arms supplier to the Vietnamese, should help out. And there were times when uh, he was impatient that Kissinger didn't get more out of the Russians in that aspect and was trying to do too much in other areas. But there was general agreement between the two of them. I don't want to exaggerate this. Oh, but he certainly had access in Washington. Yeah, Henry and Debrina used to meet what they call the map room of the White House, uh, usually without anybody else uh, present. Henry paints a very in-depth and 
admiring portrait of Dubrinin in his memoirs. Obviously, Dubrinin would always present and defend Soviet interests, but Henry felt that he was willing, unlike most communist ambassadors in particular, to explore potential uh, steps forward without committing his government. And they had an extremely good relationship. And I think it's fair to say it was absolutely mm-hmm. crucial to the whole uh, American-Soviet relationship during these years. Was something different going on between Kissinger and Dubrinin and Nixon? Were they having a different kind of negotiation than the public negotiations that were happening in Europe at the time? Well, it was certainly more detailed. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, <laughs> Henry's mode of operation, again, <laughs> was sometime to send people off in a general negotiation, which he formed the framework for, uh, while he sort of explored the ex- more possible uh, extremes, and that led to a result in the negotiation. And these gentlemen can sure. talk about the arms control dimension of this, but the one exception really was the Berlin Agreement we'll get to, where he did work very closely with our ambassador uh, in Germany, Kenneth Rush, uh, and it was more an exception uh, to yes. other issues which were handled almost strictly by Henry and his staff. I think part of it was the nature of the problem when it came to arms control, our, our main subject here, in that you were talking about these existential issues for each nation. Uh, you know, if things really went wrong here and there were a nuclear so, war, it would be catastrophic. And so they had to be dealt with at the very top level. And the problem was the normal diplomatic mechanisms didn't make it easy to deal with things at the top level. Whereas Henry could go talk to Dobrin and he could then walk into Nixon's office and show him a note or suggest a note to be sent directly to Brezhnev, hand it to Dobrin and know that Dobrin would get it directly to Brezhnev and his close staff and that it wouldn't yeah. be uh, uh, interfered with by the Soviet military or by the Soviet bureaucracy. And, and so it, it, it really was a channel between the leaders, between uh, Nixon and our days Brezhnev, uh, that... Uh, uh, was what the uh, Dobrinin uh, connection was most important. Let me, let me ask both of you, because you were both in the Pentagon, you were in the bureaucracy, <coughs> you were part of what Nixon and Kissinger and Dobrinin and Brezhnev were trying to avoid. Was it an effective way, do you think, of dealing with these very serious Yeah, I, I think it was, because um, the delegation, uh, you know, the U.S. delegation that Jerry Smith headed, was under very tight wraps. I, I ran something called the verification panel, which Jan later did. We put together, debated it, and put together a position uh, which the president then signed in an ISDM. And they were really bound by this, and they were given relatively little flexibility to try mm-hmm. fallbacks and things like that. They really had a position. They had to s- s- position it, stand with it, and push hard on it. They might have some minor variations, but they couldn't kind of look at all these variations and explore things. They were not permitted to do that. And the Russians had trouble doing it, too, because the Russian military, senior military person there, clearly was a powerful member. He's the only one that understood any of these military kind of issues. The others knew almost nothing about him. So the formal uh, the formal discussions really were uh, not a good place to explore something as complex and uh, with as many sort of variations and so on as, as this one. You, know, you, you talked about um, the period between 69, 70, 71, you know, Winston has outlined with the ambitions that the president had, but really, it was sort of stalemated, wasn't it? In this, in in 1970, 71, you were having negotiations, but nothing was. Yeah, happening. very little progress was made, and, and uh, but then in 71, things began to change. I think uh, 
clearly uh, Brezhnev began to get greater control. He probably had more interest in this than his predecessors did. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was this breakthrough in May of 71, in which we got this agreement, uh, which said both sides are really serious about negotiating an agreement, and it covered <coughs> two of the key elements. Uh, an ABM treaty with sort of small, limited capability on each side, and a control or freeze over the offensive ICBM buildup the Russians were doing. So this was an important step, and things really accelerated after that. You can talk well, to the other things. Before we got to that yeah. point, though, in 69 and 70 was clearly a mixed picture. Uh, we've outlined <clears throat> what Nixon and Kissinger were trying to do with the Soviets, but it wasn't working very well. Uh, there was the slow progress on the arms control front. There was uh, a series of crises. In fact, in a three-week period, you had three crises at the same time. In the Middle East, the Cuban sub-base, and Chile. Chile's not part of our discussion today. So it was a busy summer of 1970. Uh, the, without going into detail, uh, the Russians were behind efforts to, to get missiles into Egypt and to have Syria challenge Jordan. Uh, that was resolved with some U.S. muscle flexing. The Russians tried to establish a submarine base in San Fuegos, Cuba, uh, and that was a tense moment. And of course, had echoes of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and again, with skillful diplomacy, I think, uh, the Russians backed off, or the Soviets backed off, and they settled for visits to uh, the sub-base, but not a permanent construction uh, there. Meanwhile, there was back and forth on a possible summit. Uh, the Russians were, or the Soviets were, frankly, insisting on an entrance price before you even have a summit, sort of basically saying we want to make progress in salt along the lines that we want. Uh, we want to sort of be anti-Chinese. We want a conference on security in Europe. So they had and wanted the, uh, Nixon to agree to these things before there even would be a summit. And so that was slow progress. Uh, <clears throat> actually, we got to the point where Nixon was sort of ready for a summit in the 70s after all the in 1970. Uh, but I think Kissinger slowed that down. There was a slight tactical disagreement. Uh, but the Russians dragged their feet, and they're going to pay a price for it as we get to the next mm-hmm. stage, namely, therefore, we went to China first. Nixon goes to China, week that changed the world. And then what happened? Well, we began to look toward the agreed May summit, uh, late May summit, in, scheduled for Moscow. And, of course... Brezhnev and his cohorts had an interest in making sure they came off because we'd been a very successful one in China. By the way, in the Shanghai communique at the end of the president's visit to China, we had a little clause in there opposing hegemony. The U.S. and China agreed to oppose hegemony anywhere in the world. Now, guess who they were talking about? (laughs) So that got Moscow's attention. So what happened uh, as we got closer to the summit, it coincided with a huge North Vietnamese offensive, again, the spring offensive, the Easter offensive, starting March 30, 1972. Uh, And this, again, brought back to what I said earlier, that Nixon felt that the Russians were responsible for supplying North Vietnam and they had leverage over them, Mm -hmm. and to a lesser extent, the Chinese. So Henry went on a secret trip. I was with him April 20, I believe, 1972, uh, for two reasons. Uh, and by the way, we took Debrina with us on our plane because we took off in a hurry. Uh, <clears throat> one was to try to get the Russians to rein in the, the Hanoi's offensive. Uh, and, and secondly, was to prepare for the summit. The, so the early part of that secret trip uh, was spent on Vietnam, and the Russians really weren't being very helpful. 
Kissinger felt was only so much we could expect them to do and we shouldn't lose arms control and all the other things we had going as we headed toward the summit because they wouldn't fully come through on Vietnam. So he made some progress on SALT and on other issues mm-hmm. while we were in Moscow. But we were getting heated cables from Nixon via Hague. We're never quite sure how <laughs> joint they were. Yeah. Basically <laughs> saying, don't start agreeing to all this other stuff until they come through in Vietnam. Henry pushed the envelope in his instructions, frankly, but thinking the president would finally agree. And, and not violating instructions, but basically saying, we've got to make progress even if we can't get to do everything we want them to do on Vietnam. So it was very successful in setting up the, the summit. On Vietnam, the Russians got Hanoi, and we got Hanoi to agree to a secret meeting on May 2nd after this secret meeting in Moscow, with a lot of secret meetings. Uh, uh, but we made it clear that we were going to react even stronger to the Hanoi offensive, that nothing came out of that meeting. Nothing did come out of the meeting. So the president, a week later on May 9th, gave a major speech. And I remember going up to Camp David with Henry in a helicopter to consult with the president and his speechwriter about this speech. And we were ambivalent. We felt you had to respond strongly to what Hanoi was doing, both so South Vietnam wouldn't be overrun and also to set up a possible breakthrough in negotiations. But we felt that what we were going to do, which was mine, Haiphong, as well as bombing around Hanoi. And that was a real escalation of the Vietnam War. The real esca- well, they escalated first well, but by they, their but, but offensive with divisions we had never pouring over the DMZ. We had never blockaded that's, the that's harbor. That's right. So this was a major step and a courageous one for the reasons I mentioned. Also, Nixon felt that he could not go to Moscow while American and Vietnamese soldiers are being killed by Soviet arms supplied to the North Vietnamese, that he would look very weak. So we had to have a strong reaction. Many of his advisors, including Henry, uh, I'll let him speak for himself, but most of us thought that we might well lose the, uh, the summit meeting that the Russians would cancel it because of this huge escalation, counter-escalation on our part. Nixon felt, no, they need the summit too much, and we can have our cake and eat it too. Nixon was right. Uh, and they went ahead uh, with the summit. Uh, Explain why that was so important, though, because mining Haiphong Harbor, whose ships would have been in Haiphong Harbor? Well, one Russian ship was hit. And whose ship? It was a Russian ship. Well, yeah, I think the Chinese got hit, too. I'm not, I'm yeah. not clear. But, on but I mean, but, so this was a real roll of the dice at that point. A roll point. of the dice. And, yeah. and the summit easily could have been canceled by the Soviet Union, right? They could have said... Well, Nixon felt they wouldn't. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And most advisors thought they, they probably would, but we had to do... Uh, Kissinger certainly was in, in favor of <clears throat> the mining of Haiphong mm-hmm. and the bombing around Hanoi, but uh, he was more worried about whether we would lose uh, the summit, although he was willing to do that. So what was it like for that couple of days in the White House? When you, the mining of Haiphong Harbor happens, you don't know what the Soviet response is or the Chinese response. Were you worried this could escalate? You could have a Cuban missile crisis on your hands? Well, I, Kissinger, I think, has said that the, he felt the whole fate of our foreign policy was in the works here, both what was going to happen in Vietnam the opening of Russia, and therefore our leverage with the Chinese, so that this was a very tense yeah. week. And we were very nervous when we went up to Camp David uh, uh, to do this speech, but it turned out very successfully. I, I was too busy working on the uh, SALT agreement at mm-hmm. that time. The other thing that happened in April during that secret trip, 
uh, was Brezhnev actually came back with a proposal which met our major concerns, um, a, a limited ABM employment deployment on either side, and a, including SLBM, submarine launch missiles, in the negotiations. And he came up with a number of 950 missiles and I think it was 62 boats. And he proposed that. And I remember we had the verification panel. We had all of the experts around there trying to figure out where in the hell did 950 come from because mm-hmm. they had a certain number of missiles on their submarines. And we did all kinds of calculations and how in the world they could match the number of boats with the, uh, with the missiles. But that was a huge breakthrough. That was really the thing that, that really was critical to going ahead with an agreement at, and at the summit. If we hadn't gotten those resolved, it would have been a very tough now, That's battle. why when Henry reported this, he thought he would get pats on the back from Nixon, but Nixon was still mad about the Soviets not helping uh, on Vietnam. Vietnam. Uh, but I, I want to say that, I don't want to exaggerate this, Nixon was happy with the general outcome as the more he thought about it, uh, but he always felt that the Russians should do more than Henry felt was real, realistic. It seems like that this is where it all comes together, is that that couple of days, the mining of Haiphong Harbor, that's the Vietnam War issue. It's would the Chinese respond? Right. How would the Soviet Union respond? And, and those sort of five or six days, you well, went into them not knowing and you walked out of them well, knowing. Well, because in the rest of 72, you had the trifecta of a Vietnam peace agreement, uh, opening not into China, but liaison offices like embassies uh, and detente with the Russians in the summit. There were some lighter moments at the summit very quickly, but first of all, the most hair-raising experiences of my life are, are, are Soviet motorcades. I'm sure we've all been through those. <laughs> yeah. They go about 100 miles an hour, and they tailgate each other. And so if you had one guy stop, you'd have the leadership of both uh, Russia and the United States totally wiped out. <laughs> Secondly, we got to the guest house where we stayed, and for some reason, all the uh, attendants and people taking care of their rooms were very attractive young women. Uh, I think they were trying to get some blackmail pictures, and of course... They did not succeed. And then finally, because we knew we were being bugged, we had an insane invention called we called the Babbler machine. This consists of recordings of about 15 different conversations, none of which make sense anyway, all going on at the same time. It was like a terrible cocktail party or something. And you're supposed to speak uh, softly, and this thing would drown out Soviet eavesdropping. But we could go about two minutes before we went totally insane. <laughs> and the final thing the Russians did to us then was... Then the walk in the garden. Yeah. Well, well, the garden, we figured the trees were bugged as well. That's right. And the final indignity was we had pool table there. I swear to God that the holes were smaller than the balls. <laughs> and so you couldn't get the balls go in the holes. So the Russians were doing all kinds of stuff. Psychological you know. warfare. Right. You know, there was an incident. Uh, the, the next year I was with Henry there to visit with Brezhnev, and, and we were very concerned. Same issue. We hated the babbler. So we would we had to find a place to go for walks, and we'd have to find big open fields to walk because they actually had uh, the NSA picked up that the Russians had bugged uh, de Gaulle when he was in Moscow. They'd bugged the trees in the garden. Well, he was and tall. It was really true. And, and so we had to be very ca- – and the babbler killed you. You just couldn't do that for more than, uh, you know, a minute or two. Well, so. Henry always had fun with Gromyko in this because he would – he'd be in a meeting and say, here's my top-secret briefing book. Which chandelier should I hold it up to? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> there was another incident like that that, that next, the next year we were uh, – and the earlier ones, they had lots of caviar all the time. And in early 73, there was no caviar. We were out at this Zavitovo, this uh, – camp way outside of Moscow, and uh, Bill Hyland in particular loved caviar. So um, at, at breakfast, we'd say, 
isn't it strange? There's no caviar today. And at lunch, we'd say that. The next day, caviar was everywhere. You know? was, well, I did that in yeah. China, guest house. I'd say, yeah. I hate sea slugs, and we wouldn't get sea slugs at the next banquet. So that was good. Uh, Talk to me about the, the summit. Okay, so you, you, know, you didn't know if it was going to happen, and then it actually happened. So you go on the summit. Was everything agreed to by the time you set off in the briefing books on the way to Moscow? Well, not on the salt side. I don't side. know. These guys yeah. ought to take you to Well, the, there were still yeah. some issues. The, uh, um, uh, the, one of the issues was expanding the size of the silos because we suspected, and later on found out it was true, that they were building a, another set of missiles that were, were slightly bigger than the existing ones and be a lot more capable. And so the agreement at, earlier uh, in, uh, in April was they wouldn't make significant increases in silos. Well, uh, nobody liked that very well because who knows what the Russians would consider secret or significant. So they had to negotiate that. What was the uh, um, what was and they finally agreed on ten to fifteen percent. And secondly, there were going to be two ABM sites at that time. One of them we felt strongly had to be east of the Urals, so it didn't have population uh, coverage, and the Russians uh, were reluctant to do that. Uh, and there was one other. I might and so like, these were all things that weren't decided upon weren't decided. before you actually. They weren't decided. Exactly. So it could have gone yeah. very badly at that summit. Yeah. Then there were some arguments over some of the older Russian submarines, mm-hmm. something called G class, that were that carried nuclear missiles, but they were diesel powered. And the Russians said, "Well, they're they're they should be counted, and so we can replace them with new modern ones." We said, "No, they don't count." And so those are the three issues that were battled out really with the, Within the, the last... president, and 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 then finally, I think they said. Uh, I guess, Gromyko and Henry off to uh, settle them in the middle of the night. Somewhere. Well, yeah, I can get back to that. But I, I think we'd all agree that summits, you generally want to have everything worked out in advance. You don't want to negotiate at the summit. Uh, and in this case, it really was negotiated there. But the rest of the summit was pre-negotiated. Mm-hmm. We had an incidents at sea agreement. It was quite so large. Navies wouldn't collide. Uh, all of these were worked out in advance. Environmental agreement, space agreement, uh, so there were other um, aspects. It should which be said that couldn't get the headlines. But it was the Russians, Soviets, loved agreements. Right. They loved to have pictures taken with everybody there signing, signing ceremonies. Some <laughs> of these were not terribly uh, significant, but the Russians put a lot of store uh-huh. on how many agreements could be signed. At a meeting like that. Yeah, we've got a picture now of everybody standing by and overlooking. So how many agreements were signed at the Moscow summit? I don't remember, but there would have been, you know, at least half a dozen of the, of the kind I just mentioned, mm-hmm. incidents at sea, space, environment. Some of those were signed just yeah. by the, the uh, foreign ministers yeah. and not by the... Uh, you know, it's also, worth, it's agreement worth, to set up an economic commission. Excuse me. Yeah. I, no, I was just going to say, uh, this, this summitry was uh, just getting started, but it interesting... Uh, result of this was uh, what actually was probably a mistake, going back to this issue of the missile silos and the size and the 15%. Ten, first of all, our dear friend Bill Hyland loved to put these ranges in, so he would say 10-15, and we'd say, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Doesn't it? I mean, you can go up to 15, right? And yeah, So uh, it wasn't clear what the 10 was in there, so there was that little kind of funny yeah. thing. But the problem was that uh, uh, it wasn't understood that what really mattered is the volume of the silo, not some single dimension, like its height, the 15%. And so it turns out if you increase the radius of the circle by 15% and the height by 15%, 
you get more than a 50% increase in the size of the silo. And so uh, this led to uh, a lot of political problems with the agreement because it turns out that uh, the Russians were able to put in silos of this size, limited this way, a much bigger missile yeah. uh, than what had been anticipated or even really what had been briefed in the initial briefings of the agreement. So Senator Jackson in particular, uh, uh, helped by his staff guy, Richard Pearl, uh, made uh, a lot of uh, noise about this for a very long time to come. Uh, and uh, later we came to understand that uh, the Soviets did understand this and they had this bigger missile already uh, in place. But uh, it was six times the capability of, at, actually more than that, because it was also more accurate, yeah. probably ten times the capability of the ones it was replacing in what were supposed to be just modernized silos. You know, that, the interesting thing was it was not just Bill Hyland and my lack of engineering background, but the Joint Chiefs of Staff were perfectly happy with the 10-15%. That was, they supported that. They, were, they accepted it. Now, maybe they had the same plan at the back of their mind didn't tell us, but uh, mm-hmm. they were not unhappy with that. But later on, it turned out it was... Well, meanwhile, while the negotiations are going on, Gumiko and Kissinger and so on, uh, you had the arms control agency led by Jerry Smith in Helsinki, and there was a lot of back and forth and considerable tension uh, about what was being negotiated, but you guys would know more yeah. about There were a lot of nitty-gritty details that had to get, you know, that, um, this, all these things that had to be agreed to. So when they, they, were, when they were working away in Helsinki when all this was going on. So when they were signing these agreements, were all the nitty-gritty details already dealt with? Uh, more or less, yeah. Okay, so the nitty-gritty details are done. You walk away from the Moscow summit. Well, could I? Uh, yeah. The, the last session you alluded to was Gromyko and Kissinger. I ought to quickly explain how yes. we got there. But let me pause for a minute. We would all agree that the two people missing today, <coughs> that the most central people, I think, yeah. in the overall relationship, Helmut Sonnefeld and William Hyland, and I just want to pay tribute to them because yeah. Yeah. they Excellent. were fantastic, and uh, I really wish they could be here yes. uh, to, to join yeah. us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last session came after a session on Vietnam. Now, uh, we've discussed this in the Vietnam series. I'm trying to promote all these uh, yeah. tapes here. But essentially, uh, yeah. we've given the background about the Easter Offensive and the Russians. Uh, nevertheless, even though we were bombing Hanoi and mining Haiphong, uh, which <coughs> the North Vietnamese didn't particularly like, here they were welcoming the American president, signing agreements and toasting. So the Russians had to be very tough with us, but it didn't mean anything operationally. So they could send a transcript of a tough meeting back to Hanoi showing their friends that they hadn't let them down. So there was a special meeting to take place at a dacha outside of Moscow. A space agreement was signed. There was supposed to be a half-hour interval uh, in which uh, the president and Brezhnev get ready to go out to the dacha. Brezhnev grabbed the president went right off in the motorcade, which is okay except for me and a guy named Negroponte had all the briefing books on Vietnam and everything else, and we missed the motorcade. It is not recommended <laughs> that you miss a presidential motorcade, particularly that includes not only the president, but someone named Henry Kissinger, who might not be pleased either. To Henry's credit, he understood it wasn't our fault, but we went crazy trying to get out there because <laughs> of security. Luckily, it didn't matter because Brezhnev took Nixon out on a powerboat on the lake uh, to relax things. So anyway, we went to the Vietnam meeting, four hours brutal attacks by 
Brezhnev, Podgorny, and Kosygin, the three top leaders, and the other person there was the National Security Advisor, and then there was Nixon, Kissinger, myself, and Negroponte. Nixon took it calmly, knew they were making a transcript for Hanoi. As soon as the meeting ended, we go upstairs, everyone starts celebrating, Brezhnev first, getting, trying to get people drunk, the whole mood absolutely changed. And one reason he tried to get everyone drunk is because we went from there over to the Kremlin uh, to negotiate the final elements of the SALT agreement. Now that, when it was first briefed to the press, was not very effectively done, and Kissinger and Smith had some tensions, and the press was having a field day. So Henry had to have another press conference, which he did on his 49th birthday in the Starry Sky restaurant or someplace, National Hotel, Hotel, (laughs) in Tourist Hotel, uh, and briefed uh, that night on the final SALT agreement. Yeah, they were, uh, Smith and the delegation were going to come for the signing, of course, and so we sent a plane, but they, apparently the Air Force sent a prop plane, and it was a very slow plane, and they put the Russian delegation on. I'm sure and so it they had deliberate. to keep delaying the signing because they were still trying to get to Moscow, and then they had trouble, the cars, uh, security wouldn't let the government cars on, I mean, it was a whole, just a fiasco, but they eventually got there, and I don't know how late they signed it, but it was signed quite late in the evening. Well, and then Gerard Smith, who was, in principle, the top negotiator, actually had not been informed about what he was there to watch being signed. Yeah. Yeah. No, there was some yeah. unfortunate, and Henry admits sure, Henry this, uh, human elements. Uh, the secrecy which made breakthroughs not only on this, but on China and Vietnam and so on, you can justify, we've talked about it when we talked about the NEC system, another tape we've done, uh, some, some humiliating aspects for other parts mm-hmm. of the bureaucracy uh, and, and, and the Congress and, and, and the, the public and the public. Yeah. So there were trade-offs. I would argue that it was worth it, but it clearly was a bizarre was system and sometimes yeah. not very sensitive. Yeah, there was this terrible worry about leaks, of course, during all of this. And in and, and, and seventy-two, the uh, or seventy-one after the uh, uh, the the May agreement, we had a very elaborate position on SLBMs and missiles and everything that was going to go to the next round of SALT negotiations. And Bill Beecher, who many of you may remember, got a complete debrief on it from someone, and the New York Times spread it across page one. And I think it actually came out before the delegation had received the instruction. That was a horrible embarrassment, whether it mattered or not, I don't know. But well, there was a Beecher, huge another Beecher report on Cambodia, which led, frankly, because of concern over lakes, to, to, to wiretapping. Yeah. But White that's House. for another conversation. That's another conversation. Hi, this is Randall Wallace. Your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast.
And now, let's get back to the show. Moscow. A summit conference between the United States and the Soviet Union has been in preparation for many long months. President Nixon is met by President Podgorny, Premier Kosygin, and Foreign Minister Gromyko. This is the prelude to eight days of hard-working meetings and negotiations. Sessions will take place in the halls and palaces of the Kremlin, 15th century walled citadel of the Tsars. Catherine Hall is the site of the first full meeting of the Soviet and American delegations. At the Inn Tourist Hotel, several hundred members of the international press have gathered to report on the progress of the talks. As they go about their daily lives, the citizens of Moscow and the world await news of the meetings. Five major agreements are signed in the first four days. An environmental protection agreement to curb air and water pollution and help protect the Earth's resources on an international scale. An agreement on medical science and public health to develop programs and exchange information on widespread health problems, in particular cancer and heart disease. Agreement for cooperation in space to resolve problems of international law in the exploration of outer space and develop a joint U.S.-Soviet manned space flight in 1975. In science and technology, the two nations will work together on a broad range of problems that affect mankind. An agreement on the prevention of incidents at sea to improve communication between ships and reduce the danger of collisions. A trade commission is also formed to promote commercial relations between the countries. 
Through the days, Mrs. Nixon represents her country to the people of Moscow. Mrs. Nixon visits the world-famous Moscow Circus. Mrs. Nixon has taken on a tour of Moscow State University, the tallest structure in the city. There are 34,000 students at the university from 105 countries. The First Lady, Mrs. Brezhnev, and Mrs. Gromyko are honored guests at the Bolshoi Theater School, where they observe young dancers at work. Training begins early here, at about the age of seven. That evening, the President and Mrs. Nixon, Mrs. Brezhnev, and Soviet leaders attend the Bolshoi Ballet for a special performance of Swan Lake. I deeply appreciate this opportunity your government from all the people of the United States and to share with you some of my thoughts about the relations between our two countries and about the way to peace and progress in the world. This is my fourth visit to the Soviet Union. On these visits, I have gained a great respect for the peoples of the Soviet Union, for your strength, your generosity, your determination, for the diversity and richness of your cultural heritage, for your many achievements. In the three years I have been in office, one of my principal aims has been to establish a better relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. Our two countries have much in common. Most important of all, we have never fought one another in war. On the contrary, the memory of your soldiers and ours embracing at the Elbe as allies in 1945 remains strong in millions of hearts in both of our countries. It is my hope that that memory can serve as an inspiration for the renewal of Soviet-American cooperation in the 1970s. As great powers, we shall sometimes be competitors, but we need never be enemies. Thirteen years ago, when I visited your country as vice president, 
I address the people of the Soviet Union on radio and television as I am addressing you tonight. I said then, let us have peaceful competition, not only in producing the best factories, but in producing better lives for our people. Let us cooperate in our exploration of outer space. Let our aim be not victory over other peoples, but the victory of all mankind over hunger, want, misery, and disease, wherever it exists in the world. In our meetings this week, we have begun to bring some of those hopes to fruition. Shortly after we arrived here on Monday afternoon, a brief rain fell on Moscow of the kind that I am told is called a mushroom rain, a warm rain with sunshine breaking through that makes the mushrooms grow and is therefore considered a good omen. The month of May is early for mushrooms, but as our talks progressed this week, what did grow was even better. A far-reaching set of agreements that can lead to a better life for both of our peoples, to a better chance for peace in the world. We have agreed on joint ventures in space. We have agreed on ways of working together to protect the environment, to advance health, to cooperate in science and technology. We have agreed on means of preventing incidents at sea. We have established a commission to expand trade between our two nations. Most important, we have taken an historic first step in the limitation of nuclear strategic arms. This arms control agreement is not for the purpose of giving either side an advantage over the other. Both of our nations are strong. Each respects the strength of the other. Each will maintain the strength necessary to defend its independence. But in an unchecked arms race between two great nations, there would be no winners, only losers. By setting this limitation together, the people of both of our nations and of all nations can be winners. If we continue in the spirit of serious purpose that has marked our discussions this week, these agreements can start us on a new road of cooperation for the benefit of our people, for the benefit of all peoples. There is an old proverb that says, Make peace with man and quarrel with your sins. The hardships and evils that beset all men and all nations, these and these alone are what we should make war upon. As we look at the prospects for peace, we see that we have made significant progress at reducing the possible sources of direct conflict between us. But history tells us that great nations have often been dragged into war without intending it by conflicts between smaller nations. As great powers, we can and should use our influence to prevent this from happening. Our goal should be to discourage aggression in other parts of the world, 
and particularly among those smaller nations that look to us for leadership and example. With great power goes great responsibility. When a man walks with a giant tread, he must be careful where he sets his feet. There can be true peace only when the weak are as safe as the strong. The wealthier and more powerful our own nations become, the more we have to lose from war and the threat of war anywhere in the world. Speaking for the United States, I can say this. We covet no one else's territory. We seek no dominion over any other people. We seek the right to live in peace, not only for ourselves, but for all the peoples of this earth. Our power will only be used to keep the peace, never to break it, only to defend freedom, never to destroy it. No nation that does not threaten its neighbors has anything to fear from the United States. Soviet citizens have often asked me, does America truly want peace? I believe that our actions answer that question far better than any words could do. If we did not want peace, we would not have reduced the size of our armed forces by a million men, by almost one third during the past three years. If we did not want peace, we would not have worked so hard at reaching an agreement on the limitation of nuclear arms, at achieving a settlement of Berlin, at maintaining peace in the Middle East, at establishing better relations with the Soviet Union, with the People's Republic of China, with other nations of the world. Mrs. Nixon and I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to visit the Soviet Union, to get to know the people of the Soviet Union, friendly and hospitable, courageous and strong. Most Americans will never have a chance to visit the Soviet Union. And most Soviet citizens will never have a chance to visit America. Most of you know our country only through what you read in your newspapers and what you hear and see on radio and television and motion pictures. This is only a part of the real America. I would like to take this opportunity to try to convey to you something of what America is really like not in terms of its scenic beauties, its great cities, its factories, its farms, or its highways, but in terms of its people. In many ways, the people of our two countries are very much alike. Like the Soviet Union, ours is a large and diverse nation. Our people, like yours, are hardworking. Like you, we Americans have a strong spirit of competition, but we also have a great love of music and poetry, of sports and of humor. Above all, we, like you, are an open, natural, and friendly people. We love our country. We love our children. And we want for you and for your children the same peace and abundance that we want for ourselves and for our children. We Americans are idealists. We believe deeply in our system of government. 
We cherish our personal liberty. We would fight to defend it if necessary, as we have done before. But we also believe deeply in the right of each nation to choose its own system. Therefore, however much we like our own system for ourselves, we have no desire to impose it on anyone else. As we conclude this week of talks, there are certain fundamental premises of the American point of view which I believe deserve emphasis. In conducting these talks, it has not been our aim to divide up the world into spheres of influence, to establish a condominium, or in any way to conspire together against the interests of any other nation. Rather, we have sought to construct a better framework of understanding between our two nations, to make progress in our bilateral relationships to find ways of ensuring that future frictions between us would never embroil our two nations and therefore the world in war. While ours are both great and powerful nations, the world is no longer dominated by two superpowers. The world is a better and safer place because its power and resources are more widely distributed. Beyond this, since World War II, more than 70 new nations have come into being. We cannot have true peace unless they and all nations can feel that they share it. America seeks better relations, not only with the Soviet Union, but with all nations. The only sound basis for a peaceful and progressive international order is sovereign equality and mutual respect. We believe in the right of each nation to chart its own course, to choose its own system, to go its own way without interference from other nations. As we look to the longer term, peace depends also on continued progress in the developing nations. Together with other advanced industrial countries, the United States and the Soviet Union share a twofold responsibility in this regard. On the one hand, to practice restraint in those activities, such as the supply of arms that might endanger the peace of developing nations. And second, to assist them in their orderly economic and social development without political interference. Some of you may have heard an old story told in Russia of a traveler who was walking to another village. He knew the way, but not the distance. Finally, he came upon a woodsman chopping wood by the side of the road. And he asked the woodsman, how long will it take to reach the village? The woodsman replied, I don't know. The traveler was angry because he was sure the woodsman was from the village and therefore knew how far it was. And so he started off down the road again. After he had gone a few steps, the woodsman called out, Stop. It will take you about 15 minutes. The traveler turned and demanded, Why didn't you tell me that in the first place? The woodsman replied, Because then I didn't know the length of your stride.
In our talks this week with the leaders of the Soviet Union, both sides have had a chance to measure the length of our strides toward peace and security. I believe that those strides have been substantial and that now we have well begun the long journey which will lead us to a new age in the relations between our two countries. It is important to both of our peoples that we continue those strides. As our two countries learn to work together, our people will be able to get to know one another better. Greater cooperation can also mean a great deal in our daily lives. As we learn to cooperate in space, in health, in the environment, in science and technology, our cooperation can help sick people get well. It can help industries produce more consumer goods. It can help all of us enjoy cleaner air and water. It can increase our knowledge of the world around us. As we expand our trade, each of our countries can buy more of the other's goods and market more of our own. As we gain experience with arms control, we can bring closer the day when further agreements can lessen the arms burden of our two nations and lessen the threat of war in the world. Through all the pages of history, through all the centuries, the world's people have struggled to be free from fear, whether fear of the elements or fear of hunger or fear of their own rulers or fear of their neighbors in other countries. And yet time and again, people have vanquished the source of one fear only to fall prey to another. Let our goal now be a world free of fear, a world in which nation will no longer prey upon nation, in which human energies will be turned away from production for war and toward more production for peace, away from conquest and toward invention, development, creation, a world in which together we can establish that peace which is more in the absence of war, which enables man to pursue those higher goals that the spirit yearns for. Yesterday, I laid a wreath at the cemetery, which commemorates the brave people who died during the siege of Leningrad in World War II. At the cemetery, I saw the picture of a 12-year-old girl. She was a beautiful child. Her name was Tanya. The pages of her diary tell the terrible story of war. In the simple words of a child, she wrote of the deaths of the members of her family. Zenya in December. Granny in January. Yucca then next, then Uncle Vasha, then Uncle Leosha, then Mama, and then the Savishas. And then finally, these words, the last words in her diary. All are dead. Only Tanya is left.
As we work toward a more peaceful world, let us think of Tanya and of the other Tanyas and their brothers and sisters everywhere. Let us do all that we can to ensure that no other children will have to endure what Tanya did and that your children and ours and all the children of the world can live their full lives together in friendship and in peace. Spasiba i do svidanja. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now. <laughs>